Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we covered several centuries of English-Irish relations, beginning with the Norman invasions and ending with the Acts of Union that dissolved the Irish Parliament amid fears of rebellion inspired by the French Revolution. In this episode, we'll pick up right where we left off as the political and economic situation in Ireland left it heading toward famine and exodus. One quick thing before we get started. I did receive a message from a listener named Cody Goodfield who suggested that we do a topic on the Fenian raids, which will make a bit of a, an appearance later, which absolutely influenced your decision to do this topic. So, Cody, thank you very much for the suggestion. If you have any suggestions for topics, I'd always love to hear from you. Facebook page, email, however you'd like to get a hold of me. So with all of that in mind, let's begin. Here on HI101. Phil Downey. Hello. And last time we were talking about uh, the Acts of Union of 1800. Sure were. We had Ireland getting a little uppity after the uh, French Revolution, feeling can't, like maybe they could make a go of it on their own. Can't imagine why. And just getting completely swatted down by Britain, mm-hmm. which is just kind of how most of these interactions have gone so far. Yep. Every not, single not, time. Not I, so favorably for yeah, the Irish. Every single time they seem to step out of line even, just like one toe. Just come in and get steamrolled. <laughs> not a pattern we're going to see break for a little while. Sigh. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, things are going to remain rough. And I think it's kind of safe to sort of do a little bit of a fast forward on the next, say, 40 years or so of, of Irish history, because it's all pretty much going to be the same garbage. Remember last time we were talking about, you know, before the Acts of Union, there was some uh, there was some movement towards getting Catholics more rights again. Yes. They were slowly making some progress on some of uh, some of those issues in terms of holding office or being able to vote, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the Catholics had never actually fully gained the right to hold office. They could vote, they couldn't hold office in Parliament. You still had to be an Anglican to hold office before the dissolution of the Irish Parliament. So that meant that the MPs were almost exclusively Protestant landowners. You also had to have a nominal amount of land to be a member of parliament. It was a fairly small amount, but keep in mind the number of people who were living in surf-like conditions in terms of their kind of sharecropping uh, lifestyle at this point in time, right? Uh, what year are we talking about here? Just after 1800. Okay. So we're we're doing a little bit of a window into like 
1800 to 1840 or so. The laws, like we had talked about last time, really unfairly favor uh, landover, landowners over tenants. There's more uh, absentee landlords in this period than ever, mostly because they don't really have any any way to exploit power or positions in government to uh, their own financial gain anymore with there being no more Irish Parliament. So a lot of these men just kind of moved home to England and they put laws in place where they could uh, appoint a manager to look after their pro- their properties for them. We had also talked last time about the landowners kind of dividing land into smaller and smaller parcels, but kind of, you know, having the size of it, but not having the rent on it. So they yeah. could make a lot more money that way. And this kind of got a little bit out of hand, like a lot out of hand. By 1845, 24% of people lived on farms between one and five acres. That's very, very, very small. A lot of the houses around here are on like an eighth of an acre of property. Okay. So think of like eight yards. Yeah. Not a lot of farming material. There's enough houses around here that are on a quarter acre. Yeah. It's not very big. I think it's, um. oh man, I'm going to get it wrong. I looked it up uh, a while ago. And I've completely forgotten. I think it's 200 feet square. Okay. I could be wrong on that. It's not very big though. Yeah. In any case. And then a further 40% of the population was five to 15 acres. These are very, very small farms. You can't necessarily grow, say, uh, grains uh, to a subsistence level on a, on a plot like this. Mm-hmm. And so people who even in the 18th century, like in the 1700s, might have been able to supplement their diet with, with a number of different foods were falling more and more back onto potatoes as a mainstay. Yeah, We kind of talked about how a potato doesn't take up a lot of room. Mm-hmm. It's cheap. It's easy. There's a lot of advantages to it as a staple. But if it's the only thing you're eating, maybe not the best thing in the world. Yeah. The other thing that was happening uh, politically at this point in time is they knew the Catholic uh, right to hold office was coming. And the way that they decided to uh, kind of prepare for that was through gerrymandering, which is <laughs> went away a long time ago and never comes up anymore at all. Yeah, that's not like it's a recent, modern, and pervasive problem at all. Do you want to give a quick rundown of what gerrymandering is? <sighs> it's hard to do it without the without the, the infographic. Sure. But basically, it's when you restructure uh, electoral zones to fit a specific party's interests or yep. multiple parties' interests. Mm-hmm. So you can group a bunch of conservative voters together mm-hmm. into one district yep. and a bunch of liberals into another. Yep. And then they are guaranteed pretty much to win their seats when realistically it shouldn't quite go like that because there's no, there's no actual local grouping of communities or culture that fits this crazy district that the gerrymanderers have drawn yeah in order to give the the parties the seats that they want yeah anyone to look at that map would not see any logical order to what exactly was happening there yeah there's there's a wonderful cgp gray video that clearly explains it and demonstrates it visually so you should check that out if you're still not clear yeah and i mean this is a system uh we should maybe just note in about as political as we get on this show (laughs) um uh, it's it's really only a system that's that's really effective or harmful in uh, first past the post yeah. uh, voting system also where true. whoever wins the most votes in a district gets a seat. If you're looking at some sort of proportional representation where the the population as a whole percentage wise divides up the percentage of available seats, uh, it becomes absolutely pointless. Mm-hmm. However, this is a first past the post system that we're talking about here. Gerrymandering is very effective, and by the time that the Catholics do get the vote in, or, or sorry, the right to hold office in 1829. There was basically no district left that they could actually effectively win. Clever. Yep, that's that's one way to put it. 
<laughs> what it wouldn't like i said last time it wouldn't be a phil episode if i wasn't swearing that's that's very very that true. wasn't even on purpose it was just like that was like the gut reaction just... that's that's fine i i completely understand it's a it's a despicable move and, and again the actions of a of a, of a group of oppressors that are, are very mm-hmm. worried about the people they have been wronging for a long time gaining any sort of power so it's consistent if nothing else during these few the first few decades of the 19th century it was not like it didn't go unnoticed that the Irish people were not doing terribly well. Mm-hmm. It was very much like a kind of pet social issue for, say, the newspapers and things like that. Like, what's going on with Ireland, anyways? There would be MPs kind of going, Why are the Irish people doing so poorly? And a lot of this era, the blame is put squarely on the Irish themselves, obviously. That's nothing unique about yeah. the. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Um, not factually correct, obviously, but like, of course, what not. you would expect the media to say. Yeah, then but, or now. But over over those decades, there were as many as 114 government commissions looking into the state of Ireland. N- not like the state of Ireland, but like the the, <laughs> the condition of the condition of Ireland. Yeah, and as many as 61 special committees appointed, all trying to figure out what they can do to help Ireland. I guess with an asterisk and a longer title that says without actually giving the people any real government representation or political autonomy. Yeah. You know. What can we do to make it look like Ireland isn't doing as badly as it is? Almost all of them go, listen, Ireland is doing really badly. The people don't have representation. They're very, very poor. The uh, system of landowners and tenants is locking them into a lifestyle that is teetering on the brink of collapse it is so unstable and so unfair and everyone went oh the poor irish if only things weren't so bad for them and kind of continued to just do nothing about it Uh, this is like laughing instead of crying like this isn't actually funny it's just like what else do you do i completely understand another thing that i should mention is that at this point in time in the united states corn had become like a really common crop And there were a lot of corn farmers doing a lot of really good things with corn. And Britain, at this point in time, was extremely protectionist. I mean, they had just gotten out of the War of 1812, a couple of, like, like a decade before. Yeah. They were interested in protecting their farming interests, both from the United States, which was kind of popping off at this point in time, and from mainland Europe, who had always been a threat in terms of uh, the agricultural trade. Mm -hmm. And like any other protectionist uh, government, they reacted by putting tariffs on outside foods. Mm-hmm. Um, this was just kind of known colloquially as the corn tax. And the aim of it was to try and keep foreign corn so expensive that people would be uh, incentivized to continue buying British grains. Uh, so it's or- a really clever name, corn tax. Can't imagine how they came up with, came up with that one. Yeah. I'm sure several committees went into that. <laughs> Um, the, the 61 special committee committees that were like, mm, yeah, Ireland's really f-. Yeah. They, they immediately went over and said, okay, now we need to come up with a name for this corn tax so that they can't get any food. I mean, these were all happening at the same time. Yeah. It was just jazz playing <laughs> off of one another. <laughs> <laughs> the minds the like of which the world had never seen. <laughs> a lot of these policies were actually influenced by Thomas Malthus, uh, the economist who famously talked about the carrying capacity of the world and the fact that there was really only so much agricultural capacity that the earth could support before population collapse. Okay. And this was done in a in a measure to try and keep 
British agricultural British. I know. It's, I it's, just rolled my eyes. <laughs> I, I, I get that. It, it wasn't just because of carrying capacity. He was an economist in a number of other uh, areas, and he was, again, looking to uh, protect British interests. But by keeping British food within... And I, I keep saying British. I am talking about a lot of this food going from Ireland to Britain because literally the people of Ireland couldn't afford the food that was being produced in Ireland right. for their landlords. So these people would go off every single day, work on a farm growing food that they couldn't afford, mm-hmm. packing it up and sending it away to Britain. And we went over it the first time, but just for clarity's sake, Britain makes up England, Scotland, and Wales, and yes. then Ireland is a smaller island off to the west. So when I say Britain, I really do mean Ireland uh, is separate from that. Right. Um, politically at this point, they are now officially, you know, Great Britain and Ireland. Yeah, the United, United Kingdom Kingdoms of Great, Great Britain and Ireland. Ireland. Um, God, it's a mouthful. But obviously there is not complete parity here. Oh, really? <laughs> I, it hadn't occurred to me. So every day these people are, are, are packing up grain and sending it off and starving and people are going, those poor Irish, how, however can we fix this problem? Um, Again, this is when we need video because like the, the facial expressions I'm making, I can't convert into words. <laughs> My next note just says the potatoes got sick. (laughs) Well, here we go. This is the one, right? This is the one. 1845. They think the blight most likely originated um, or or, or was most likely carried from the United States, but it's kind of hard to say with things like this. It wasn't just Ireland that the potato blight affected. Potatoes, uh, potato crops everywhere in the world failed. But let me guess. Ireland was probably the only agricultural system that's sustained itself almost entirely off of potatoes why phil however did you know i'm very perceptive i mean it was a lucky guess it was really hard i mean it's it's literally the only thing these people ate and the crops were dying the potatoes themselves uh were were rotting in the ground that was all of their food right away people started making moves towards doing something to take pressure off of Ireland. The main thing that was being called for was removal of the corn tax. Let's give these people access to cheap American corn, which seems like a pretty reasonable start. Did did the corn tax actually get removed? Eventually. <laughs> the other thing that was called for was the Parliament Commission Public Works in Ireland to employ the Irish, in order to inject enough money into the system that these people could afford other types of food. This is very similar to like that 1930s, like uh, New Deal, uh, Franklin yeah. Franklin Roosevelt, you know, building all these dams and interstate uh, highways and things like that, just in order to get people out of the Great Depression and working again, right? Yeah. It's actually a fairly effective method of kickstarting an economy. Commission public works, pay people with government dollars, once they have money to spend, they'll stop hoarding it, and it gets the whole machine going again. Yeah, uh, Tried and true. Works quite well. And some of that started going into place, but maybe not as quickly as it might have gone into place other places. Mm-hmm. The prime minister at the time, uh, a man named Sir Robert Peel, wanted to make sure that this didn't affect Ireland too badly. But his main concern here was that aid might stifle private enterprise. I think he was legitimately worried about this, but this is also one of those arguments that's kind of rooted in a kind of discriminatory place where it's kind of like, we're, we're talking about not wanting to give people government handouts to not make them lazy here. That's yeah. the that's the concept that I'm couching in, in kind of kinder language. Have you seen, this is funny, we're going back to Guy Fox here. I've sure. seen View for Vendetta, right? Yeah. I don't know if this is the same in the graphic novel, 
but in that movie the country terrorizes itself mm-hmm. to keep the country under control yes and it, I, I just get that same feeling here that like britain is just like ah, we'll just keep them downtrodden because it's easier to deal with them that way yeah i mean i i I, I see where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's I think it's very much a different than, thing than they were depicting there because that was almost a more talking about false flags and things like that than it was of, of necessarily a, a, an entirely oppressed class of people um, the way that Ireland was at this point in time. But I, I, I do take your meaning. Yeah. And there was certainly this idea that I think in his own way, Peel did care about what happened to Ireland, mm-hmm. but that he believed the best way for Ireland to assert itself as... Uh, contributing and independent and uh, wealthy part of the United Kingdom was through its own industriousness and ingenuity, failing to recognize that the, the things that had been put in place to keep uh, Ireland from actually accessing any of those things was what was hampering them, not uh, the spirit of the, the people of Ireland. Yeah. Which is like a really complicated web of, of things and, and, and very much a problem of, of Sir Robert Peel being a, a, an English noble alive in the 1840s <laughs> uh, more, more than anything else. Yeah, it's, that's he's fair. very restricted by his, his worldview there. I, but again, I, I think he really honestly wanted to help, uh, mainly because he actually, in order to get around this whole like government aid ruins everything kind of thing, he had cornmeal purchased with government dollars and like secretly taken to Ireland in the guise of kind of like private donations like he made it seem like private individuals were giving to this okay rather than this is something from the british government to help you through it's it's this this uh reluctance to give uh welfare yeah cornmeal is fine it's horrendous to eat yeah it's really really terrible and sound like something i'd want to eat but i suppose if it was you know that or death well the thing was you'd have to boil it Mm -hmm. so long to break it down or otherwise it gives you stomach aches mm-hmm. um it's really really bad for your stomach i mean have you ever gone to a movie at like 4 p.m and it's been like a couple hours and you have some popcorn you're like ah no oh, doesn't feel quite right yeah yeah i know it's strong then you're about done yeah yeah imagine that's all you ever had to eat ever yeah it's not good people ate it because they had to mm-hmm. um didn't feel good about it he did get those corn laws repealed though and to be honest it, it cost peel his premiership wow uh he he put all of his political capital into this. And and that's why I say like absolutely I do think he honestly did care about what ha- what happened to Ireland. Yeah, fair enough. He put his career on the line and he lost it. Those those public works were a contributing factor to him being voted out of office. He tried. And and there were early efforts made and they do seem to have made some small difference. Aid started pouring in from around the world because people were hearing about, again, the plight of these poor Irish people. If only they hadn't somehow through Providence or something found themselves in this situation. Yeah. We're donating uh, funds to. But the interesting thing is they weren't donating them directly to Ireland because there is no direct Ireland to donate to. And so they're donating them to the British government Mm -hmm. to use on behalf of Ireland. You had the government of, of the United States was donating. Uh, you had the Vatican was donating. Queen Victoria herself donated, uh, I believe, 2,000 pounds, which is a massive amount of money at that point in time. Yeah. There's rumors that the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire donated uh, 10,000 pounds, but was asked to lower his donation to not show up. Oh, Queen Victoria. Uh-huh. Which is just the a- worst kind of Victorian era, era political posturing, right? It like, definitely sounds plausible. Yeah. And so again, it's coming in, but like 
Ireland isn't really seeing maybe as much of that directly as they should be, because the prime minister that follows up on uh, uh, after Peel is a guy named Lord John Russell, and he's a conservative through and through. He's a an early uh, 19th century Adam Smith laissez-faire uh, free market type conservative. Adam Smith? Founder of basically the modern school of economics and capitalism. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Might want to peep his Wikipedia page sometime. <laughs> You'll see a lot of stuff that you recognize. He's, sure. he's he's the supply and demand guy. Oh, okay. He believed that the, the markets would solve the issue. Let's let her ride. Because we've never seen that fail. I mean, no, they might not have. It'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. You know what? The people will, the food prices will go down and down until people can afford it and then they'll eat again. Because that's how things work in a famine, right? Yep. He straight up, all. He straight up halted all government aid projects, just full stop. Yeah. Peel had had his reservations about it, but mm-hmm. did what he felt was necessary to save the people of Ireland. Russell went, no, this isn't going to work. Cut that out. Even though it had actually shown marked improvement. Yeah. He appointed a guy named Charles Trevelyan in charge of, basically in charge of aid for Ireland. Charles Trevelyan believed that God sent the calamity to teach oh, Ireland, Ireland a lesson. This is the man in charge of aid Uh huh. for the entire country. He's the one running the books on this. Well, you, you did say it wasn't going to get better for a while. In 1847, they finally realized this actually wasn't working very well mm-hmm. because lots of people were dying. Imagine that. Lots of people were dying. We're kind of ignoring that angle of things. Phil, everyone was starving to death in Ireland. Yeah, it was really bad. Really, really terrible. It's not a good way to go. When they realized it wasn't working in 1847, they decided that the best way to handle this in, you know, a very free market sort of way is to move the cost of aid onto the landlords. Because if you can't afford to keep up your tenants, then you don't necessarily deserve to own the land to help them out. I don't know, man. I I, I don't get it. None of this logic really <laughs> makes any sense. I, I think the point is the aid needs to come from private wealthy citizens, not from uh, the government, and so they decided to, instead of directly providing for the people of Ireland through some sort of pool of government money, they decided to mandate that the landlords look after their tenants. So it's an indirect tax rather than a direct tax, and that's the only difference. Yeah. Except here's the thing about tax money. When you pay your taxes, it goes into a pool. The government decides where it goes from there. Mm-hmm. When you put a requirement on something like land ownership or specifically holding tenants you give people the option of whether or not they want to continue doing that thing literally as soon as you said this i'm like so did they just bail yeah they just started evicting people why wouldn't they it it costs too much It, it it's economics it makes sense it's literal cause and effect relief was offered by the government but it was restricted to anyone who had less than one quarter acre of land okay i have a question yeah at this point in time is there like some fear of socialism or communism that exists yet? Like, why are we not willing to accept welfare? So the big scare, the big scare on socialism is actually going to be next year in 1848. In 1848, and I've, I've touched on it in other episodes, it would almost be interesting to do just a tour of the world in 1848 because it is bonkers. There are more than 50 countries in which there are massive riots. Wow. In a number of them, it turns into full-on revolution. Mm-hmm. And all of them are kind of for different reasons but all of them are sort of socialist in nature 1848 is also the year that marx is going to write the communist manifesto so sounds like a good year 
<laughs> you should probably do that. I'd listen to that episode. It's, it's interesting, that's all for sure. At, once, at some point, you know, that one sticks out. The point is, though, that like this sort of idea of, of capitalism versus communism is very, or, or socialism is very much in its infancy. And it's not so much that there's a, a, a massive fear of welfare as there is absolutely no concept of uh, a responsibility for welfare before this time. Okay. Because, I mean, really before the Enlightenment, people were not that valuable of an asset. Yeah. Just individual human life didn't have that much value. And so the idea of someone... Isn't, isn't that just a lovely concept? Oh, Let that sink in. Goodness. Like, we say, it, we say it casually because, you know, at the time it was true. Mm -hmm. But think about the meaning behind that. Yeah. The hardest thing to understand about all of this is that our concept of the value of individual life is actually a novelty in like on the historical timeline. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is, we, we are, we are exceptional in our value of a single human life. Yeah. And that's, that's worrisome to me. That's kind of freaky. Yeah. I, re I remember taking medieval studies and, and global studies in a uh, university mm -hmm. and like this con concept coming across that like valuing human life individual human lives mm. is a fairly new thing yeah and even now or in recent history sometimes it's taking trouble having trouble rather catching on yeah it's uh it, it's not a sure thing that's for sure and it's been shall we say unevenly applied yeah <laughs> nice little skirt around that issue the uh no the the, the welfare issue is very much i, I mean you have to remember how much class is still a very real part of Victorian Britain at this point. Sure. And there is a concept that a person's station in life is a matter of providence. It's, it's there, there is, God has decided that this is the place in society for this person. Yeah. And it's not my fault that that per person is so poor that they can't afford food. Who am I to go against God's plan? Hmm. It's, it's, yeah, I know. And, Again, like this isn't this isn't everywhere, and this isn't I'm everyone. So angry right now. This isn't everywhere. This isn't everyone, and there are lots of very very good people who do really important and valuable charity work through the church. I don't I don't mean to make it sound like there's some sort of like of course. You, you know there's there's some sort of uh, all encompassing evil to that side of European culture at this point in time. It's not that. It's just that the higher classes don't feel obligated. Mm -hmm. They don't see their place in life as privilege as having been just super lucky on that roll of the dice they feel like they deserved it just by being born who they are and there's a reason that system has gone to the side because it's it's not a great one amen for that no the uh the the fear of the fear of helping these people is that you know at, at this point in time we're, we're looking at the beginning of the, the industrial revolution there are people making obscene amounts of money off of very uh, cutthroat and uh, unfeeling manufacturring practices and uh, and economic practices, and we just haven't figured out how to counter that yet. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of people that feel like because they can get away with it that it's right, and those are two very different things. Most definitely, always. So I guess that's my answer to that. I know it's not a satisfying one. Well, it kind of makes sense. I, I was thinking the timelines didn't work out like that. We would have had a experience with socialism. Socialism is point. brewing under the surface. Well, like, it's very much like right there. You can kind of feel it, right? The fact that like welfare would have been a great idea here mm -hmm. and they didn't do it. Yeah. It might convince some people that like, hey, maybe we should do that. Yeah. No, it's very much a direct 
reaction to the industrial revolution and that's just kind of just getting off the ground or hasn't even started depending on what we're talking about yeah britain got started earlier than a lot of places but still it's it's a pretty new thing true yeah, we, we sorry, we were, we were talking about this relief that was being offered for anyone who had less than a quarter acre of land. That's yes. 100 feet by 100 feet. Mm-hmm. That's a really small chunk of land. Yeah, it's not big. So if you had that much land, you were deemed ineligible for government support. You had enough land to get by, sorry. That was the cutoff. Okay, why? It's where they decided it was. Those special committees again. Yep. So above that, it's 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 uh, restricted to, or or sorry, it's it's on the shoulders of of landlords. But anyone who's got like say half an acre, and you know, a family of ten, like good luck. You, your only source of food is potatoes. You're not eligible for government support. Mm-hmm. If you say anything to your landlord, he's just going to kick you out of your home. And then what are you going to do? A lot of what happened at this point in time was an industrialization of Ireland because. As soon as you're evicted, where do you go to make money? The factories. That's the only option you have. And so mainly men, but also women and children to some extent, were walking away from farms that had been in their family for generations, or at least their families had uh, kept for generations, uh, if we want to be very specific about it, and moving to the cities because that was the only place there was to work, working in obscene conditions because... It's new. Not only that, but if you don't, there are 10 guys outside ready to take your place because they're starving too. Yeah. You are lucky to be working those 100-hour weeks. Capitalism. Just the best. It's so great. Early early industrialization is just so rough. It's so rough. More than 100,000 people lost land in like just this small period of time in in this manner, like being being evicted or walking away. Do we know the population of Ireland around now? So, we are looking at it kind of ends up being at around 9 million around this time. Mm-hmm. About a million people are going to die in this famine, uh, either of starvation or disease. This is over a four-year period, 1845 mm-hmm. to 1849. It's a big chunk. Yeah. And I can't stress enough, the food kept going to Britain through this entire thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't stop shipping it over. Food was available. It was just unaffordable. You could buy food. No one had the money for the food. There was an Irish politician named John Mitchell who famously wrote, the Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. Dang. He was exiled to Bermuda for that. Yeah. He wasn't wrong. I would say that he was right. I would say he was very right. (laughs) Especially about the latter half. You'll find a lot of literature about this that is specifically referencing the fact that this is a created thing. Yeah, they would call it. There, there are still people who will refuse to call it the famine because famine implies some natural disaster. Famine implies a lack of food. Yeah, at, at like the that wasn't the problem. Yeah, at the, at the at the Oxford Dictionary entry <laughs> one level. Yeah, that is the problem with a famine, and that wasn't the issue. Yeah. They'll call it the starvation instead. Yeah. So, th- this just boggles my mind. They had the ability to do something about this mm-hmm. and chose not to. Mm-hmm. And who profits from this decision? They do. Yes. And who suffers? The Irish. Mm-hmm. The people who they want to keep control of. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's I think that's fair to say. It feels awful to think about. Here's the thing. At this point in time, because they are part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain Great, Great Britain and Ireland, they technically have free access to any British colony. Mm. Which means that 
some of them did move to the United States, and there's a fairly robust tradition of the Irish immigrant experience in the United States yep. for good and for ill. But eventually they kind of went, okay, no more Irish, please. We've got a lot of you guys right now. Yeah. But places like Canada and Australia and South Africa, they didn't really just like close the doors. Yeah. And Irish people just kept coming. And, and for good reason. I mean, I don't blame anyone who up and left at this point in time. Oh, this is How could you? It's a survival thing. There, there's nothing there anymore. They don't even have homes, most of them. They, they basically seem like refugees in all but name. I don't think it's unfair to name them re- yeah. refugees at this point in time. Yeah. That specific, you know, legal status didn't exist at this point in time. But other than that, yes. This is this period in time that we kind of referenced at the very beginning of this, where while there's this massive Irish diaspora, which is what they call the, the spreading of Irish people across the globe. Mm-hmm. And you have places like at this point in time, Toronto is 50%, over 50% Irish descent people living in Toronto. Really? Yes. I had no idea. There are massive Irish populations in numerous large Commonwealth cities at this point in time. And why wouldn't there be? Of course. Despite that, this is a point in time where in Canada or in the United States, someone who's Irish is considered of lower social class than someone of English or Scottish descent. Mm-hmm. And there's this weird hierarchy of of ethnicities at this point in time. It's It's very... Icky? Yeah, I know a thing or two about this. Well, I mean, it was it was restricted rights for a lot of these people, and you know, to to put it very very mildly. When was the U.S. Civil War? The eighteen sixties. And what year are we talking here? This is uh, well uh, during the Civil War would have been when some of these people were moving out. Uh, anywhere between you know the 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 middle of the famine, so the eighteen forties, late eighteen forties, on to about nineteen hundred is when the the bulk of this exodus happens. I have I have a piece of information I'd like to contribute to this topic that Please. I learned in school. Yeah, absolutely. And this blew my friggin' mind, but it ties really nicely into what you're talking to about this whole class status of Irish folks. Yeah. They were considered not people. Yes. In a lot of places. Yep, that's correct. Like they were just things. Yeah, I think I think people really overestimate the level of citizenship mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that existed before, say, World War One. Yeah. Let's just use that as a, as a vague marker because, man, it varies all over the world. It definitely does. But, and I, I find this especially strong in the United States, where there's this idea that the American Revolution happens and all of a sudden there's suffrage for everyone, yeah. which is, is absolutely patently false. Yeah. Factually um, incorrect. Yeah, they they didn't have full citizenship, and as non citizens, they had non rights, mm-hmm. and and there was a lot of like it was it was very much a two two tiered system in terms of the opportunities that were ahead of them, and so a lot of a lot of Irish people ended up being very much uh, pioneers, settlers, um, moving out of established communities and fi- and founding their own because that was really the only place that they could find some sort of acceptance, yeah. um, which is. A whole other level of depressing. I mean, they've already left one place where they were yeah. uh, less than, and they're in another that they're less than, and they have to wander out into the wilderness to find some place where they can just be themselves. It's 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 pretty rough. I don't think it should be any surprise to note that the famine resulted in some unrest in Ireland. You don't say. There was some mild resistance. Uh-huh. It was also suppressed fairly easily. I don't think the people in Ireland were in any position to raise a, an army to counter that of Great Britain. Uh, at this point in time there's a word i'm looking for it's when you're dismissive about an important thing flippant maybe 
Maybe. There's literally a word that describes the attitude we're taking towards describing this. We'll put it in the show notes if we figure it out. But yeah, like, I, I would have said flippant, but hey, we can look up at the source later. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's tough because you kind of get worn down after a while talking about this and you don't want to seem like you're uh, flippant yeah. about all of it. But I mean, of course they're going to get, of course, of course they're going to resist. And of course they're going to be like effortlessly put down. They're, they're starved. They're, they're dying. They have dead. nothing to lose. Of course they're going to resist. Yeah. Uh, they have nothing else. I mean, the entire social system of the country of Ireland was in shambles after this famine. And again, you can't really overstate the whole thing, but you know, every, everyone was homeless or dead or had left. There it's was nothing. Up. It hmm? is. It's up. Yeah. Like that's yeah, it is like factually correct. It's this. Yeah. There's something called the land war at this point, which a lot of people just refused to pay rent. They felt that the landlords had utterly failed in their duty to, by government mandate, support them. Because they probably and almost definitely literally had. Yes, uh, that's true. And and what they would do is they would just stop paying rent and say to the manager, sorry, you're not the landlord. I'm not going to pay it to you. I need to pay it to my landlord. And this is technically true. Yeah, technically, I mean, if you're not fulfilling your duties as a landlord. Also kind of illegal because this person has been deputized by the landlords to yeah. act on their behalf. And they're just going, yeah, we're not going to recognize you anymore. Um, any landlords that did actually come to Ireland were usually met with force. I was going to say, were they moidled quickly? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Violently? This was met with what was known as the Irish Coercion Acts. Okay. In which they, uh, the, the government of Great Britain decided to suspend trial by jury and impose martial law uh, on Ireland. Uh-huh. That's proportional, right? That'll go well. Something known as the Irish Republican Brotherhood was organized in response. That sounds um, like a great thing. And this isn't just about Ireland anymore because Ireland isn't just Ireland anymore. It's an international body. It's also sometimes called the Fenians. Okay. Um, but it's got memberships in all of these countries that Irish people have emigrated to. Yeah. And all of these people have this idea in their head of sort of a, it's, it's almost Zionistic in a way liberating ireland and oh, yeah. and kind of returning to this th this this new free strong home country uh that would be there for all irish people and the fenians were poorly organized to say the least mm -hmm. mostly because it's really hard to do something like set up an international uh revolutionary movement yeah, 19th century there was a, a really badly attempted shot at taking dublin in 1867 but it was quickly suppressed. Basically, uh, same deal as we've seen in other cases. The British sent in spies and figured out who the, who the, who the leadership was, mm -hmm. cut off the head of the snake, and that was about it. Yeah, They're really good at that. They're very, very good at it. That being said, you're going to see uh, as we move on that the Irish will figure out that that's a problem and take steps to uh, counter it in the future. You had this weird episode where U.S.-based supporters started raiding the coasts of Nova Scotia, of, of Canada, which had just been confederated. Okay. Um, the thought there being that they would take Canada ransom for Irish liberation. So they were going to invade Canada, take it over, and then give it up in return for Irish independence. How'd that go? It really badly. Yeah. This was basically the first time Canada had ever had to 
assert any sort of sovereignty under its its new confederation mm-hmm. uh they had very little problem i, I shouldn't say very little pro- problem the fenians harassed the the shores of the maritimes for some time yeah um but it didn't really come to anything mm-hmm. uh they were successfully able to uh, repel the invasion i suppose you could say <laughs> there are other groups that are a little bit a little bit less revolutionary minded uh that kind of start coming up in the later 19th century though 1870 there's a group called the home rule government association the home rule government association basically wanted one of two things their achievable goal was <laughs> or or what they saw as the the achievable goal was a devolved parliament being b- brought back to ireland just okay. give us an irish parliament even if it's technically subordinate to british parliament just give us some sort of self-representation mm-hmm. their stretch goal was a revocation of the 1800 acts of union okay so we don't want to be part of the uk yeah we don't think we should be that irish parliament that made that decision wasn't representative of the irish people and we don't think that this is right let's revoke it we can table the, or we, we we can we can visit the motion again if you want yeah i bet this time it fails of course but there's Again, significant resistance to this in Ulster, in that far north uh, segment of Ireland that had been basically a Protestant bastion ever since the uh, the flight of the Earls, when a whole bunch of Protestant and Presbyterian or Anglican and Presbyterian merchants were installed as lords in those in those provinces. They didn't want an Irish Parliament. They were doing just fine with a British Parliament. Thank you very much, because they were doing quite fine. These were the people that were able to afford food through the famine. These are the people who are holding these government offices. They're fine. Mm -hmm. They like things the way they are because they're still in a position of power. Yeah. On the flip side, they feared what would happen if there was a Catholic majority actually in power. Maybe for good reason. Yeah. 1873, the Home Rule Government Association was taken over by Home Rule League. Like, we just keep going through these kind of uh, political organizations that are kind of quasi-political because they don't have any real power. They're just uh, organizing and protesting. Organizations and... with political goals. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I don't mean to devalue them in any way. It's just that they don't actually hold any real office, yeah. which makes change significantly harder. But what else are you going to do in that situation? The Home Rule League would uh, evolve into uh, the Irish Parliamentary Party in 1882, led by someone named Charles Stuart Parnell. And they started actually making strong, organized bids for Let's just let Ireland have a parliament again. That's all we want. It can be the worst parliament ever. We just want to actually elect our own representatives because right now we're not. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they were, but the MPs were in London and had absolutely no influence over any British policy. Yeah, The number of Irish uh, MPs that were actually sitting in London, even if every single one of them voted for something, they would not have the votes to pass any legislation under any circumstances, even with a significant coalition with other parties. Right. That's not necessarily a real representation when you're talking about a geographical group and an ethnic group that is as separate as Ireland is from the rest of the United Kingdom. Yeah. We're starting to get a bit closer to my political interests here. Right. With the whole issue of representation. Well, by, by 1886, they actually make their first attempt at home rule. There's actually a bill goes forward. It's kind of like a private member bill, mm-hmm. but actually makes it into the parliament in London. And it is defeated in the House of Commons, but it was actually very close. Home rule for Ireland had become something of a pet cause for uh, a segment of the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have uh, Irish pet causes. I think political activism is a funny thing because... 
it's easy to look at someone and go, poor you, and say like, oh no, I, I support this cause. But then when things get hard, a lot of those same people maybe aren't as willing to do the hard work to get that final mile, which is often where a lot of these resist- resistance movements fail. I think the modern version of this is called armchair activism. That's not an unfair... Parallel? Parallel. Parallel works. Yeah, it's it's easy for everyone to go, oh, poor island, I wish I wish things were better for them. But when it comes to like, okay, well, let's, let's get them their own parliament, it's kind of like, well, but is that best for everyone? Yeah. Some of the... Some of the liberal MPs break ranks and they vote against home rule and the bill fails. Mm -hmm. But they keep pushing forward. In 1881, they start passing what are known as the Irish Land Acts, which are a series of reforms which are designed to give more rights back to to tenants Mm -hmm. and kind of slowly empower the Irish people, which is a little bit more tolerable. It's always more tolerable to go slowly. Yeah. 1893, a second home rule bill finally gets on the table. It's actually passed by the House this time. There's been some change-ups. But then it's defeated in the House of Lords. I know. It just keeps getting closer and closer. (laughs) The rage. (laughs) And I mean, through all of this, there are people campaigning in in England trying to make the case for home rule. This is, you know, more and more people are becoming aware of like, listen, hey, remember that famine thing? It was really bad. Maybe the least we can do is give Ireland some control over its own governance yeah what's what's going on with the famine right now like is it fixed it slowly righted itself over the 1850s the blight went away the blight went away they basically it it was very specific to or it was especially bad for the variety of potato that had been common in ireland at the time Mm -hmm. between switching up varieties and kind of changes that went in place that stopped forcing people to live on tiny tiny parcels of land and allowed them to vary their diets a little bit more both contributed to relieving the famine um then with uh literally less people because everyone was leaving or dying yeah true that frees up a lot more land for people uh Mm -hmm. also brings down rent because well i mean it's it's all of a sudden a very competitive market to be a tenant you also need less food that's true there's a lot of like really oddly calculated economic outcomes of that famine that end up being good for the irish people in the long run those that survive or stay yeah but only at such a terrible cost that it's not really it doesn't feel right to call it a benefit yeah it's just it's one of those problems that can't sustain itself but yet is still incredibly devastating Mm -hmm. public works do occur in ireland that help put some money into the economy Mm -hmm. there are all these people working more industrial jobs and moving out of the countryside so the urbanization of ireland helps all of this yeah lots of small factors kind of come together but i mean it's still kind of not the best place to be living there's just a lot of people very passionate about the country though they they do not give up on it yeah and that's that's one of the most fascinating things about this story for me they just never give up on it because we're coming up on five six hundred years of of contact with the english for i was gonna say for better or worse but almost always worse um, <laughs> patently worse it's it's been a rough slog mm-hmm. and they just they just don't give up there's a there's an 1898 act that puts local rural affairs into the hands of local government so they basically create municipalities which is seen as kind of like a stepping stone towards home rule yep. um, but again it's not enough for anyone and nor should it have been there's a bit of a blow up around this time in the house of lords where Basically, they're supposed to more or less rubber stamp certain types of legislation from the from the House. Are they similar in function to like the Senate? Very similar. Yeah. Appointed for life. Yeah. That's the Canadian Senate specifically, not the American Senate. Um, they're they're appointed for life, and they are considered to be there as a 
uh, I think the term they use in Canada is the chamber of sober second thought, this idea that because they're not elected, they can think of things more long term mm -hmm. and consider the, the, the long term outcomes when in reality, what it does is give people a lot of power without without a lot of accountability. So anyways, mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> we don't have political views. Don't worry about it. <laughs> We're unbiased. I understand the place uh, that the second house has in politics. That doesn't mean that certain things, just because they've worked well in the past, doesn't mean that there aren't better ways moving forward. Let's leave it at that. I, I, I can I can get down with that. <laughs> They're not really supposed to just go ahead and veto things like say budgets. Mm -hmm. There's and this isn't a legal thing. This is a this is a precedent thing. This is a convention uh, convention thing. But they do that, and there's a bit of a blowout in terms of uh, renegotiation of the, the the types of powers that the House of Lords and the House of Representatives hold specific to ireland like we don't need to get into that whole thing even though it's very interesting it's also very technical and very kind of nitpicky yeah um the consequence for ireland is that in 1911 an act is spe that specifically prohibits the house of lords from preventing home rule is passed mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting how did that get past the house of lords basically by forcing them to pass it either you pass this or you don't exist anymore type thing or they they managed to get enough support within the house of lords that the house of commons was able to get it past the house of lords limiting the house of lords own power in reaction to this this budget scandal interesting um among other considerations this was lumped in with a number of other uh changes that were made at the time of course politics that's how you do it and in 1912 finally a third home rule bill is attempted and it passes the house of commons mm-hmm and it passes the House of Lords because it has to. Yep, there's a law that says it can't. And no. then it receives royal assent, which is the next step for legislation in uh, the British system. Yep. And not every bill necessarily needs to receive royal assent, but if it does receive royal assent, it's like double passed kind of thing. Yeah. Like it's 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 passed in a, uh, a more final way, in a way that's harder to revoke in the future. Yeah. Let's put it that way. But this process takes a couple of years. Uh, it takes until 1914. Mm-hmm. And even though it passes all of these things, in the late summer, the First World War breaks out. And this bill, while technically passed through all of these stages, is never actually enacted. Great. I think we're going to take a quick break here. Uh-huh. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how very patient and understanding the Irish people are going to be about <laughs> this development. Leave a comment if you didn't see that break coming. <laughs> We're back on HL101 here with Phil Downey. Hey, hey. And World War One just broke out. War were declared. This is exactly kind of a big deal. Might have heard of it. Yeah, I, I think they said it was like a pretty great war or something. Something like that. You know, the the, the situation in Ireland was kind of it, it was it was really divisive when war broke out, mainly because there were two minds about things. One was, hey, what the heck? We were supposed to get home rule, and now you're just putting it to one side what is this garbage mm -hmm. which is kind of understandable yep and then there was another camp uh which basically said you know what this sucks but if we're actually going to get anywhere maybe we should just be you know good members of the uk mm -hmm. we'll fight our war and once it's done we will point to that and say look we held up our end of the deal you guys hold up yours yeah it isn't something we want to be involved in but Everybody else is, and I'm sure they don't want to either. We'll do our time, and we'll move past this. Mm -hmm. I, I I can see a lot of benefit to both of these perspectives. Yeah, it's it's sort of hard to look at one of them or either of them and be like, 
no, that's the wrong one. Like they, they both kind of make sense. Yeah, definitely. And and when you're dealing with any sort of political movement like this one, there's such an emotional factor to it that you really can't discount that angle of things. For sure. People are not cold and calculating. It's just not how people work. Mm-hmm. The whole like, hey, let's just do this war thing kind of started dying out very quickly, though. Oh, really? Have you heard of the Gallipoli campaign? No, I couldn't even say that word again. Gallipoli. Okay, I think I could do it now. As I'm someone with some that. some Newfoundland heritage, yes. is that correct? You should know a thing or two about Gallipoli. There was, during the First World War, a campaign to secure the Dardanelles Straits. Okay. Which is basically the way you get from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Held by the Ottoman Turks. There was some bad intel. Okay. And it was this massive amphibian campaign by Britain and its allies. But by Britain and its allies, I mainly mean the relatively few British troops and a lot of troops from all the various dominions and colonies and things like that. Mm-hmm. This is the source of Anzac Day, which is the Australian New Zealand New Zealand Armed Corps. It's seen as kind of a galvanizing moment in their national history. People from Newfoundland were especially hard hit in all of this. They they sent all of these people from, you know, Ireland and Newfoundland and Australia and New Zealand to fight on the beaches of Gallipoli. And it was a massacre might be a reasonable way to describe it. Intel was bad. Uh, landing was difficult. Usually characterized as the only major Ottoman defeat in the entire or uh, Ottoman victory in the entire war. Wow. It was bad. It was very, very bad. They did not accomplish anything there. Um, and for the First World War, that's not necessarily a unique thing. Sure. But this is right around the time that a lot of these places are gaining some independence. Mm-hmm. And to have such a almost disposable attitude towards them by Britain at that point in their history did a lot to kind of distance places like Australia and New Zealand from any warm feelings toward the Commonwealth. And those places are still part of the Commonwealth, but you'll notice that maybe aren't terribly... There's some pretty strong anti-royalist movements in in some of those places. Yeah. But yeah, the, uh, the, the war was not kind to Irish soldiers and the kind of more cooperative movements didn't last terribly long. There was specifically a group called the Irish Republican Brotherhood. It's just one more of these kind of ad hoc organized groups because... Again, people don't have any really strong real power. Yeah. Uh, even all these home bills that are going through really depend on the support of basically the entire Liberal Party in Britain for any political traction whatsoever. That's not like a natively Irish solution to all of this. They're just benefiting from uh, this push towards home rule for Ireland. So 1916, Easter weekend, uh, this Irish Republican Brotherhood moves in what's known as the Easter Rising. Uh, They seize a bunch of key locations in Dublin and uh, issued a manifesto proclaiming Ireland a completely independent republic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thousands of British troops came to bear on them. Okay. This independent republic did not last terribly long. Nearly 2,000 people were sent to internment camps over this. Irish people? Irish people. Wartime is not generally a great time to do things like armed uprisings. No. The war machine is kind of in full effect. And I mean, their thinking on this was, well, they're occupied on the continent. Maybe this is an opportune time when in reality it was kind of like, well, just move another division over to Ireland and take care of this, please. That and 
you know, it's it's never a safe thing to uh, rise up against a, an oppressive government. Mm-hmm. But when it's wartime, man, that seems like extra treasony. Yeah, that's true. It's not great optics. Is treasony actually a word? <laughs> I kind of just made that up. It feels good. <laughs> it does. I like it. I am almost a hundred percent certain you won't find that in a dictionary. We should fix that. We gotta we gotta make it a thing. Hey, man, language is descriptive, not prescriptive. <laughs> hey. 1917 there's a, a committee kind of organized the the irish convention and this is a direct result of the easter rising and it basically was a bunch of british parliamentarians who were trying to figure out okay obviously we need to keep going with this home rule thing because we tried putting it aside for the war and obviously that's not good enough for ireland we want to avoid another armed uprising yeah maybe we should work on actually getting this implemented and figure out how that might work the problem is that Home rule has been a, a pet project for so long that a lot of people are getting tired of the idea. Yeah. It's not enough for them anymore. Oh. They want an independent Ireland. Like, these these fringe groups aren't the only ones that want an Irish Republic. Yeah. And, I mean, who can blame them? It's not like the Commonwealth has been terribly good to them. They've been terribly something to them. <laughs> good isn't the this, one I'd use. This, this is true. It's no surprise that people from Ulster are calling themselves unionists they actually don't want any home rule whatsoever Mm -hmm. they just do better when it's completely british run because they're kind of the ones still in charge yeah they're also afraid of a catholic majority Mm -hmm. so at the very most they want like very limited home rule with strong british uh, influence but there's thousands of people in ulster uh who support just no home rule whatsoever for ireland there's this thing called the ulster covenant in 1912 which is like a a a counter manifesto by unionists who basically say we don't think home rule would be good for ireland please don't put this in place but they are culturally and demographically in the vast minority they're just very concentrated in the very far north of ireland i'm sure you can see where this is eventually going in contrast to that, there's a political party known as Sinn Féin that's founded at this point in time. You've probably heard the name before. No? Uh, they they get again? Sinn Féin? No. Uh, they're going to get very influential during during the Troubles, during the, the strife in Northern Ireland, in mm-hmm. the, mainly in the 70s. We're not really going to get into that stuff too much, but yeah. they would continue to be very uh, influential at that point in time. Is that uh, a Gaelic name? Yeah. Uh, it means, it means uh, something along the lines of like, we ourselves, or like the, the people kind of thing. They wanted a fully independent Ireland. That was their political goal. They're a, they're a properly organized political part, party, uh, or or at least political organization, as much as any of these other ones are. Mm-hmm. But that's what they're campaigning for in this uh, convention that's being called. So any delegates to this convention who are for independence are likely identifying themselves as Sinn Féin. It's more identifying the movement rather than the other way around. Yeah, And they just want to avoid as much British influence as possible in this. And it turns into a deadlock to no one's surprise, right? And neither side uh, was was willing to compromise on any, any of this stuff, again, unsurprisingly. So they start discussing potential alternate solutions to all of this. And what they come up with is uh, the possibility of dividing Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, specifically north-south, basically using the, the historical borders of Ulster, or at least six of the nine counties of Ulster, as the dividing line. The idea being, hey, everyone in this area feels super differently from everyone in that area. Let's split it up. We'll do what each area wants and then move forward from there. Because otherwise nothing's going to happen whatsoever and everyone's angry. However, this convention didn't actually result in anything because the war was ramping up. Conscription became necessary. A lot of these guys had to go off to war. 
you know, it, it was no longer about volunteering. It was about whoever's number got called. Yeah. And that kind of really ruined the whole thing in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, what was to most of the world a much smaller issue than what was going on in the fields of Belgium. Yeah. So, and I mean, to an extent, very understandably so. But then the war ends. And a big part of what changed at the end of the First World War was this focus on two key concepts that are being pushed mainly by Woodrow Wilson, the the president of the United States at the time, with uh, something that was called the 14 points. It was basically a a roadmap to a uh, a post-war world. And the two main things that it was pointing out was the concept of a nation state, so the idea that every nation should have its own state, Mm -hmm. and the concept of self-determination, that a state has the right to determine its own policies to make its own way in the world, which are very high-minded concepts. Yeah. They're not necessarily new concepts, but have traditionally been very unevenly applied, especially in Europe, which up until now has been a country of, you know, monarchies and and empires that um, are not necessarily following that rule of one state per nation, uh, especially looking at things like the uh, extremely uh, diverse Austro-Hungarian empire. These points are mainly leveled at Austria-Hungary at this point in time, as well as the Balkans, which were mainly under Austro-Hungarian influence, but... uh, this is where you get things like uh, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia yeah. basically going, look, this is th- these are not the same people. Why are we lumping them all under the same government? This is awkward for Britain, mainly because they are in direct violation of this self-determination nation-state policy in the form of Ireland. Ireland is its own nation. Yeah. Uh, one could very convincingly argue. And by that log- logic, should have its own state and should be able to self-determine and while britain isn't like is 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 imposing this on all these other nations kind of reluctantly because it understands the precarious situation it puts itself in not only with ireland but also uh oh i don't know india for example yeah yeah while while all this is going on hmm? (laughs) it's like oh yeah india yeah (laughs) india yeah while all of this is going on it still has ireland in its backyard Again, super awkward. So it's kind of like, yeah, like we, we really need to figure this whole thing out, right? And they decide to push forward on this whole uh, this whole home rule thing, but it's taking forever. It's just not working out. They're still considering division as a uh, as a potential uh, alternate. They're not sure how to proceed. They're trying not to embarrass themselves on the international stage. And meanwhile, Sinn Fein decides to just kind of take matters into its own hands. Uh, it's been long enough. They have an election in uh, in Ireland in 1919. Uh, sorry, in 1918. Ireland's been having elections all of this time, but they're electing mainly liberal MPs, mm-hmm. right? Well, over the course of the war, Sinn Féin had organized to the point where they were at least nominally a political party. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you don't need to be a member of a political party to be elected. Parties are a kind of weird... Out. It's a side effect. Yeah, it's a side effect. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, well, members of Sinn Féin won over 70% of the seats in the 1918 election. Keep in mind, this is an expressly Republican independence movement. They and won how much percent? Over 70% of the, the seats. Of what parliament? Of the Irish seats in the British parliament. Okay, okay. I was going to say... They, they did what? 70% of the British yeah. so, I mean, parliament? I, I keep talking about them as though they don't have any representation whatsoever, which isn't yeah. strictly true. They Just do have... It's it's nominal. It's yeah. it's uh, a token in the most you know derogatory sense. Yeah. These members 
decide that this is a mandate. Which I mean, supposedly you you could argue is is technically true. Yeah. That's a that's a decisive win for that party. For sure, it is an independence party, and so they establish. Uh, I've got the Gaelic written down. I don't even know if I should even give it a shot. Go for I it. I think it's Dale Aaron, uh, which is the Irish Assembly. Okay. On the twenty first of January, nineteen nineteen, they establish their own parliament in Ireland. Which isn't actually sanctioned by the British government at all, and right. it's basically a rogue parliament. But that's how independence movements start. Mm-hmm. They immediately went to work uh, drawing up and ratifying a constitution proclaiming an Irish government independent of Britain. And they claimed sovereignty over the entire island. Uh-oh. It's a bold move. It's, it's big. It's also... Like so many other independence movements, it's born of a sense of desperation because um, to be an Irish nationalist at this point in time and to feel like Britain is never going to do anything about any of this is a very relatable position, in my opinion. Yeah. War breaks out, obviously. Clearly. Troops are sent to put this down. Britain can't have this. This is where you get the establishment of the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, Mm -hmm. which it's really important to understand in the in the in the history of Ireland is not a government sanctioned organization. The IRA most most properly could be described as a people's militia. Okay. It is a an extremely loose organization of politically active volunteers. I mean, at the outbreak of war, uh they signed up 70,000 members. Of those, maybe 3,000 were actively fighting at any given time. Sure. So it's important to understand also that often their numbers end up very much inflated because they will take any and all comers, whether or not they can actually fight and whether or not they actually are fighting. Yeah. Oddly enough, it was actually skewed towards middle class careers, like the people who are joining up rather than necessarily like uh, rural or or lower class people. Do um, we have an understanding as to why? I think mainly it has to do with uh, political organization rather than necessarily their class position. It's a lot easier to organize secret meetings when you are a member of, say, uh, a merchant's guild than if you are a farmer and your nearest neighbor is a 20-minute walk away. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of affiliated with the new government, but also kind of not. It's At certain points in time, we're going to talk about the IRA as though it is the army of the new irish state Mm -hmm. at times they're basically rope because it's set up as a cell system not as like a properly organized military okay what's the cole's notes on what a cell system is oh just the idea that it's uh it's not a a single hierarchy that it's uh reporting to collectives yeah it's, it's little it's little cells that are um made up of a very small number of people who are more or less autonomous and who often pick their own objectives Mm are fairly self-directed. The idea being that if any one cell is defeated or infiltrated, they have limited knowledge of other cells and the, the damage is contained. Basically, the same day that the that the assembly is declared, uh, the IRA begins action uh, throughout the country and and of its own initiative, basically. It's it's a bunch of people who are going, basically, finally, the, the war is here. Yeah. This is what I've been waiting for. Let's get to it. Uh, they kill two members of the Royal, the Royal Irish Constabulary that first day, which is like a, the, the British police force in Ireland. Britain responds immediately by expanding uh, the RIC, the, the Royal Irish Constabulary. Yep. And uh, it was populated almost entirely by volunteers 
who were fresh back from the war. Mm-hmm. You'll often see this after big conflicts. Smaller conflicts that break out tend to attract people who were uh, professional soldiers in those big conflicts that seem to be a little bit directionless, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Early IRA action was mainly involving acquiring arms and freeing political prisoners. Okay. That was their that was their main objective, at least to start. But then as the RIC expands with volunteers, they start kind of getting a little bit more direct with some of the uh some of the military action. These RIC volunteers are what is going to come to be known as the the black and tans, which is uh <laughs> It's one of those things that uh, it's a name that carries a lot of meaning to anyone who is from Ireland. Okay. The Black and Tans, the the name actually comes from the uniforms that they were issued because it was kind of thrown together out of volunteers. Uh, The uniforms were a weird mix of British Army khaki, so the tan, Mm -hmm. and uh, RIC. It's a color known as rifle green, which is like a very, very dark green, which is the black. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's a nickname for them. It was actually the idea of Winston Churchill, who was Minister of War at the time, and would actually end up being Minister of the Commonwealth by the end of all of this. So yeah. he's going to he's he's going to be instrumental in both the war against Ireland and the administration of post-war Ireland. Support for the IRA wasn't really unanimous. A lot of them, like a lot of the assembly, wanted a non-violent resistance. They wanted to basically peacefully protest through carrying out local government without the authorization of of great britain yeah. which is an interesting way of doing um an independence movement and probably won't last very long but it's not there's not a lot of people you see trying that and kind of thinking well maybe this won't turn it to be a, a violent action yeah but still I, I i kind of admire that that outlook a lot of the other ones though kind of went no war's coming the rac wasn't able to control the entire country even with all even with this influx of volunteers there just weren't enough of them and they were basically pushed out of any countryside and into really only the cities and like the the towns um they just couldn't hold all of that land there was no way for them to hold it they may have been former they may have been soldiers in another life but that doesn't make them commanders those are two very different skill sets and the other thing about the Black and Tans that's really important to understand is that they weren't trained police. And one of the problems that you can get into with policing, especially with a especially with a population that is not incredibly docile, is that if you're not very specifically and specially trained in policing, it doesn't take that much to push someone into committing some pretty terrible atrocities yeah, i was just gonna say this seems like a recipe for escalation i mean they're they're former soldiers they've just come back from the you know some of these guys would have seen the psalm some of these guys would have like you know what i mean like it's it's not policing any population even uh, uh one in uprising isn't the same as fighting a war on that yeah, scale very different but those guys were right back there yeah and they weren't just fighting against the IRA. They were committing these atrocities against civilians, largely because the civilians were the IRA. And, yeah. and anytime you have guerrilla warfare like that, how do you distinguish the enemy from the people that you're supposed to be protecting slash controlling? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very ambiguous situation, I guess is my point, And one that uh, they weren't really equipped to handle. There were more than 7,000 of these guys, the, the black and tans. And I mean, there were never more than 3,000 active IRA members, I think we mentioned earlier. Yeah. But the IRA was just kind of 
smarter about it. Mm-hmm. They use a lot of secrecy, a lot of uh, guerrilla tactics, and really carefully chosen targets to drive them back. And by July of 1920, uh, the Black and Tans had basically been effectively, if not defeated, then certainly accepted that they weren't effective against this population. Yeah. And they were replaced by over 2,000 auxiliary troops. And it would be nice if at this point it was like, well, at least these guys are trained to know what they're doing. Um, the problem with the auxiliaries is that they did. They were. They were trained. They were very effective. Um, but they were also just as brutal as the Black and Tans, if not maybe even more so. Mm-hmm. Just better at it. Great. Interestingly enough, in December of 1920, uh, the fourth Home Rule Bill goes across uh, the, the table of Parliament and is implemented as passed by both houses all of that but it was just kind of behind the times legislation takes a long time to pass um i'm sure that there were people or i know that there were people already working on this before war broke out in ireland they fully expected this to make a better life for ireland yeah um problem is by the time it actually passes we're kind of past the point where this bill is going to be helpful however it does have the effect of dividing uh north and south ireland North Ireland gets direct British control and South Ireland is given a version of home rule. Um, basically, no one actually wants any of that anymore. They just don't. The, 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 the war has progressed to a point where virtually uh, everyone is either a full-on loyalist and wants to be nothing but British in sort of this melting pot of the United Kingdom, yeah. or else they want full Irish republicanism, full Irish independence. The main reason that the division still went through and really that the whole bill happened at all was I think that there was some hope that at least part of Ireland would stay British if things went south. Yeah. They had a portion of Ireland Ireland that would remain British. Literally um, went south. Yeah. A month later, you get what is famously known as Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. IRA operatives had struck at British intelligence in Dublin. They'd killed 14 uh, intelligence officers. Uh, They had wounded five others. The Black and Tan struck back. But instead of striking back by, say, going after a known cell or something like that, they retaliated by shooting into a crowd at a football match. These are people out enjoying a soccer game. Mm -hmm. They killed 14 people and wounded 65 in the gunfire. At the same time, three political prisoners who were like in jail, held in jail, were killed trying to escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one bought it then either. Yeah. I think the conventionally this is pointed to as a point of no return. You think? Murdering innocent civilians? I mean, it's fair to say that there were plenty of other really terrible incidents that were... We, we just don't really have time to get into. Yeah. This one was considered especially brutish and especially pointless. And like... There's no justification There's no it. subtlety. No. Nothing. There's no, like, maybe they were trying to do something else or maybe it was blah, blah, blah. Like, that's just... It's incredibly thuggish. Awful. Yeah. And thuggish. um, it certainly didn't win them any friends mm-hmm. the ira was never that con- that that effective in conventional battle uh you line up a bunch of uh former soldiers and you line up a bunch of militiamen militiamen with stolen guns and yeah. poor organization and 
it's not hard to tell where you should be putting your money. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time they tried pitched fights, uh, they, they tended to lose. That was where the majority of the IRA losses were. But those guerrilla tactics, they were very, very good at. And this led to an odd sort of attrition where both sides were feeling like this just can't go on. Yeah. Because Ireland or the IRA was feeling like we can't actually take Dublin. We can't actually take the military on in, in like an, an actual battle. Uh, if we can't do that, how are we going to take Ireland? Britain, meanwhile, is going, we can't subdue this population. Mm-hmm. There's so many of them coming up. We don't know how many IRA members there are. We don't know how long it's going to take to subdue them. We don't know how many more men we're going to lose in all of this. We, we got to do something about this. The IRA responded to this by drawing up plans to take the fight to Britain. Like they, to the island? To the island of Britain. Wow. Uh, specifically, they were looking to target economic targets. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I mean... Listen, they're not going to go blow up Parliament. That's so 17th century. They figured, hey, if we hit the shipping yards at Liverpool, mm-hmm. that's going to have a massive effect on British economy, and that's going to make them listen to us. That act that divided Ireland and gave technically South Ireland a version of home rule had its own Parliament now, mm-hmm. um, as did North Ireland. It had a, it also had a, its own devolved Parliament, and they kind of just continued on like. That was how it was supposed to be. Because that's, I mean, that's that's what you do when you're Britain in this situation. They can't recognize the Dale as legitimate because that would effectively recognize their authority and in doing so... Legitimize them? Legitimize them and legitimize the independence movement, which they can't really do or certainly aren't willing to do. And so they actually hold elections for this South Ireland parliament that's gone into place. This takes place on on May 13th, 1921. There's 128 seats in this new parliament. Uh, Sinn Féin takes 124 of those. All before. Mm-hmm. Surprising. Uh, Who? Yeah. <laughs> then, every single elected MP refuses to take their seat, which you can't run a parliament if none of the MPs show up. Yeah. You don't have quorum. You can't pass any laws. It's It's completely ineffective. Under this new act, it technically transfers authority to the Lord Lieutenant, who's kind of like a the the governor, uh, or you know, in in Canada would be the the Governor General, yeah, um, the head of state, representative of the monarch. But what it does is just like it, there's there's no there's no elected government on Britain's side in South Ireland. Britain makes the first move uh, towards a ceasefire in June, and it's honestly the most laughable nonsense their gesture of goodwill on 6th of june 1921 uh the rac stopped burning down civilian houses in order to ferret out the ira excuse me how kind of them it's really important to understand that every single war that happens in ireland is just rife with atrocities against civilians that's awful and like i i get it i'm i'm right there with you on this one man it is absolute garbage that this is a thing yeah straight up hot garbage the the idea that the that the conciliatory gesture would be hey we'll stop just randomly burning down people's houses is is just insane to me but that's what it was meanwhile the north ireland uh parliament also had an election and Mm -hmm. there's kind of stuck a little bit more and they decided that as just like a gesture of goodwill um george v the king at the time 
would go to North Ireland and address the parliament there. Mm. So, you know, the safe Ireland. And the speech that George V gives at the parliament in North Ireland is very good. Oh. Um, I suppose would be the best way to put it. I feel like I'm waiting for a but. No, uh, this is the first time that there isn't one. Huzzah. I just find it very interesting that this is actually pointed to you as something that helped the cause. Yeah. Uh, you'd think that this would maybe inflame things a little bit. Yeah, like a, the, the, the monarch coming down and saying, y'all need to get your in order. And I mean, that's not what he said. He yeah, spoke to the greatness of the Irish people and things like that, yeah. you know. And uh, yeah, the, the, the general consensus, though, is that it was actually somewhat helpful. Hmm. You know, the ceasefire negotiations had been going on for a couple of weeks at this point. But uh, it, it was seen as a helpful gesture. Finally, it was agreed on uh, July 11th, 1921, where, you know, the, the negotiations started uh, for a permanent peace. So ceasefire goes in 11th of July, go into negotiations for a treaty. And it's finally finished uh, December 6th of 1921 with what's, what's known as the Anglo-Irish Treaty. So there's a lot of terms involved with this treaty, but the main ones that we should we should point to are... Britain allowed Ireland to form an independent state within the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. uh, it was specifically noted, you know, basically modeled after Canada's place in the Commonwealth at that point in time, an independent country, but still part of the greater Commonwealth, which meant that the king was still technically head of state. Mm -hmm. It was just no longer a part of the United Kingdom. It was also agreed in this treaty that Northern Ireland had, uh, had to be given the chance to withdraw from the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Mm -hmm. which they did. This is where we get Northern Ireland today. And they were given one year uh, until it would go into effect for everyone to get all the details in order. Yeah. And as of December 6th, uh, 1922, exactly one year later, uh, the Irish Free State went into effect. Hmm. First Prime Minister was uh, W.T. Cosgrave. And with that, there was an independent country of Ireland for the first time in centuries. It. they did it kind of <laughs> uh oh <laughs> i mean the thing there i think the most the most glaring thing there is is northern ireland yeah everything that ends up going on in northern ireland is kind of we we don't really have time to get into all of that mm -hmm. uh it's it's kind of a lot but for the moment I, I should point out that basically the first thing that happens within the new irish free state is a civil war which is actually very common within um independence movements yeah well i mean i can point to another one you have um you have a lot of people fighting um against something and are, are united in that in that struggle against something yeah and then when they have to start building something in reaction to that the ideas of what the alternative should be often cause significant divisions um those are those are two very different things fighting against something and building something else mm -hmm. basically the basis of this civil war was well why should we let northern ireland go there are a lot of le leaders notably uh, uh a man named liam lynch who felt that no we need to keep fighting this is like we're being bought off here mm. Sinn Féin declared independence of the entire island of ireland uh we want the entire island yeah the people in North Ireland, or or sometimes they'll call them British Ireland, or or occupied Ireland even, uh, are still Irish. Yeah, and we need to liberate them. Is is kind of the the tack being taken there, where the new 
government of Ireland is basically saying, like, guys, like, we've done this. Yeah. We need to, like, catch our breath here. We are a very new country. We need to figure out what we're doing. Hopefully someday, but not today. Yeah. And, yeah, quite a bit of fighting breaks out. And, you know, it, it lasts a, a fairly short amount of time. It, it, it kind of burns itself out. But a lot of what's going on here is former IRA cells fighting each other. Mm. Because some portions of the IRA are legitimized under the new government. But not all of them, because not all of them accept the new government as legitimate if they're unwilling to support a free Northern Ireland. Sure. And there are cells of the IRA within Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, also fighting for Northern Irish independence. And it gets very, very, very messy very fast because it was never actually a fully legitimized organization. Yeah. And it was never really a fully unified organization for that matter. The Civil War was just as difficult and just as brutal, even with the lack of British involvement. Mm -hmm. That passion that went into that war was about the future of Ireland um, I can kind of understand how people got worked up about their own visions of it. Yeah. Doesn't excuse what happened necessarily, but I, I man, I, I get it after everything they had been through. The Civil War had kind of wound down by the time the, or, or shortly after the Free State went into effect. And things quieted down for, for Ireland. It was now technically a Free State. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, a lot of what helped with that was once the treaty had been signed, the parts of the IRA that had been basically working with stolen weapons against well-equipped uh, British troops were given access to purchase good British weapons, mm-hmm. which makes a big difference. Yeah, And so the legitimate uh, army of the, of the Free State of Ireland was now as well-equipped as the people they had been fighting all along. And it ended, it ended things fairly quickly. In 1937, um, just by way of wrapping up, a new constitution was ratified. Um, which included a clause that allowed Ireland to exit the Commonwealth. I was just going to ask. That was my my burning question. Here. Yeah, uh, if it so chose. Yeah, um, and then it did. And yeah, in 1948, officially became a republic free of the Commonwealth. The situation in Northern Ireland remained, um, and remains to this day. Yeah, like I said earlier, I don't necessarily want to get into the troubles uh, too much. We've covered a lot of ground on this topic. Yeah, and it's it's kind of its own thing, but. I mean, by way of summary, really, the conflict there is between uh, those people in Northern Ireland who want to join the Republic of Ireland and those who want to remain part of the United Kingdom. Yeah. And those tend to divide along religious lines. And looking back at the story that we've just gone over, understandably so. Yeah. Because religious lines in Ireland because of its history, are also class lines and lines of political power and lines of economic superiority. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky web to untangle. It is. Yeah, see, see the previous however many hours that we've spent on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it is really difficult. And and I, I mean, the, the situation in Northern Ireland would remain tense until the, the Good Friday uh, treaties in uh, 1998 or 1999. I, I've forgotten which. I'll, I'll add it to the notes where... You know, the British government worked with individual, like, cell-by-cell IRA groups to negotiate ceasefires. Mm-hmm. And I I remember some of this when I was a kid. Not a lot. Yeah, I have vague. But I remember it being a thing. And, and I mean, you know, it was always presented as kind of a very simplistic thing. Oh, this is about religion. And that's not really an accurate picture of what's going on there. 
it's yeah, it's, it's a little bit reductive it's very very reductive and and maybe it helps identify the players to some extent but that's not what that struggle is about uh at all yeah as you just said see the last couple hours <laughs> yeah so the parliament that was put in place in that 1920 treaty that southern ireland basically ignored yeah that parliament is still in place in northern ireland that is the government of northern ireland today right located in belfast straight uh, you know dead in the middle of ulster yeah and you know when i when i put asterisks all over the title of this when i called it irish <laughs> independence it's it's really it's really because of northern ireland that i did that i mean First of all, I, I don't generally go into anything more recent than 20 years old for, for really obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and even then, it's, it's you know, 20 years is a, is a rule of thumb. It's about, is this still happening? Because it's not really reasonable to apply historical interpretation to something that's ongoing. Yeah. Not how it works. This is still ongoing. So I, I, I won't comment on it too extensively. But what I will say is that the independence movement that resulted in war in the 20s uh, didn't achieve its entire aim, which was the entire island of Ireland free. Yeah. Uh, and its definition of free being independent of British rule. There are lots of people who are happy with that. There are lots of people who are not. Uh, I'm not going to wade into that quagmire. Um, but in terms of understanding current events, I mean, historical perspective is always so important. And especially with this one, it's really important to understand where people are coming from and what issues from their pasts are influencing their their perspectives today on both sides of that conflict yeah for sure and it, it may be uh more or less dormant at the moment and it may be you know much more peaceful than it was 20 years ago but the factors that led to it are still certainly very much under the surface mm -hmm. so that's irish independence with a with an asterisk damn that was a trip it's a bit of a rough story isn't it i that's, that's putting it lightly i've i've always known kind of that Ireland hasn't always been very well treated by Britain. Yeah. I always kind of had the sense that it was sporadic mm. at most, that it was Rather kind of a, like a thing that happened once in a while. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's systemic. It's, yeah. it's ongoing. It's constant. It's, uh, it's, it's something that, that did not really let up. And I don't think Ireland is necessarily the first country that people think of for a story like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It seems very Western European, and that's not the kind of country that you usually uh, expect to find in that position. Colonialism, man. Colonialism. Any final thoughts? Reactions? I, I Honestly, I'm a little bit stunned. Uh -huh. it's, it's a lot to take in. Yeah. And like, yeah. We, we blew through a lot of information, and... and it's a Phil episode, so I was trying to cover <laughs> cover ground and give a very holistic picture. There's, you, did there's, you did an amazing job. It's just like... There's a couple portions that I I, I I could have spent more time on and and probably deserve a little bit more attention. But in, in terms of giving a more complete or, or, or more extensive, I should say, uh, look at Ireland's uh, relationship with, with England and with Britain, um, I, I kind of... I kind of leaned that way when I had to make a decision, so... You did, you did good. Yeah, it's it's... It's a bit of a rough story. A little bit. Yeah, I think that's everything I've got. Yep. You're good? I'm good. Well, I mean, as good <laughs> as you can be after that story. Phil, thanks so much for coming on today. Not a problem. Ireland, or at least most of it, 
is an independent republic today. Northern Ireland remains a part of Great Britain, which continues to be an issue for many. The reasons behind its separation from the rest of Ireland goes back centuries and is far more complex than simple religious unrest. Next time on HI 101, we'll be talking about the October Crisis, also known as the FLQ Crisis. That episode will be up on August 1st. Since HI 101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.